I'm Jake Landau, and this is the It's Called Soccer podcast, the podcast where we talk about everything happening in American soccer. I am joined by the brother and sister duo, the Gaudens, have joined me as always, Thomas and Ellie. So today we are talking about the U.S. men's national team draw against Mexico 1-1 last week. This extended their unbeaten run over the last five matches against their bitter rival. USA and Mexico have a joint bid for the 2027 Women's World Cup, so it is possible that the U.S. could host a World Cup in 2026 and 2027. Have Leeds botched it? Weston McKinney and Brendan Aronson look to have regressed with the team. Tyler Adams is injured, and it seems like Jesse Marsh might not have been the problem at Leeds, so we'll talk about that. Then, more coaches in Major League Soccer. The old guard of who we thought were the best of the best have found themselves at the bottom of the table in Major League Soccer. So we'll talk about Peter Vermees, Greg Vanny, Oscar Pereja, Bob Bradley, and all of those folks. ATL is good again in Major League Soccer. We have an expert fan in Tom who's going to tell us why that's happening and what will happen in the future. We are recording this on Sunday morning, so Atlanta does still have a game to play. I can't wait for Atlanta to make Tom eat his words. So whatever he says (laughs) later on in this episode will be proven false at 4.30 today when Atlanta plays. And then finally, we'll talk about the rematch of last year's amazing final in Major League Soccer that is going to be happening in the CONCACAF Champions League semifinal between LAFC and the Philadelphia Union, which gets kicked off this week. All right, that's a lot. Let's get through this episode. But first, how are we doing, folks? Ellie, what's going on? Not much, just recovering after a Chattanooga FC game yesterday. Great game. Um, 1-0 victory for the, for the boys in blue, so glad to see it and excited with that beginning of soccer season. It's been a really, really good start for Chattanooga FC. And like you said before, we started recording. No more power Pilates before capoing. We will for Nothing with one. <laughs> Man, when I say I passed out last night, that's an under just <laughs> ouch. Good thing for a podcast. You just have to sit on your butt and talk. So that's good. Tom, how are you doing? Doing great. Um, first weekend in a few weeks where I can just sort of sit and chill and, you know, watch some soccer and just be a normal human being and not be traveling or hosting family. So feeling pretty good. All the finals are just around the corner. So it's a very brief little bit where I'm not super crazy busy right now. BetOnline.ag is your number one source for all of your basketball information, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines, including the latest player reports for this year's pro basketball playoffs. BetOnline is always your sports information headquarters this season, as we have you covered for all of your sports wagering needs, basketball, Major League Baseball, NHL hockey, right to UFC, boxing, and the best sport on earth, soccer. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to get your betting information, including live betting options and your favorite casino and card games you can play right from your own home. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Be sure to use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Please gamble responsibly. Okay, guys, let's start on the U.S. men's national team's 1-1 draw against Mexico this week. It was a weird week. It's not an international window, so Major League Soccer had a lot of players released for the teams between the U.S. and Mexico, a lot of Liga MX as well for Mexico. 1-1 draw. 
we didn't really care about this game. We talked about it on the last podcast. I don't know how we feel after the game has been played, but given that we drew or won, it's always nice. And we did extend our unbeaten streak against our rivals, Mexico, to five games. Last time we lost to Mexico was a 3 nothing friendly in East Rutherford in 2019. So four years, five games undefeated against Mexico. Did that make you care any more about this game? What were your takeaways? Ellie, maybe we'll start with you. I did not care about this game. And I was sitting there watching. I only got to watch the first half. But I, I part of me that I only watched the first half was, I just could not care. I just, I cried so hard. But I was like, we weren't in our best form. Um, there was so much struggle. Um, watching that first half was a little painful. Um, and then just knowing that it was a game that made no sense, that it was looked like a cash grab, that really the only person I wanted to really look at on the field was Serginho Des for me. And so I spent a lot of that, and Jesus Ferreira, but I spent a lot of that time just being like, this is why am I here? And so I ended up just not do it. I was thinking today, preparing to talk about this game, what the the different tactical intricacies were and everything that we can talk about. And there really weren't any, to be honest, nothing that we haven't seen before. And because the game was so sloppy and the players were not connecting at all, there wasn't much to talk about in terms of the X's and O's. It was kind of like, let's throw out these players on the field. Let's get our money for the game. And hopefully something good happens for the fans in the stands, which looked to be a majority of Mexico fans, a lot of green in the stands. Tom, what did you think of the game? I mean, U.S. soccer made their money on this game. That's that's one thing that came out of it, I guess. They they got better ratings than they did for any World Cup qualifier, I think, for that game, and they got uh, a full stadium. So props to them for that. So beyond that, I don't know. It's hard to take away a lot. It's very weird that we set up the way we did and then tried to play possession ball. I, I don't really know what the what the point of playing Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman and just trying to, you know, build from the back was. But then again, you know, you're bringing everyone in, giving a day of training and saying go. So I'm not really sure what else we could have done there. Yeah, it was just, it was a rough one to watch. I did a full watch through again yesterday and it was not any better to watch on a Saturday afternoon. It was, yeah, to watch on a Wednesday night. Um, yeah, I just sort of, a rough, friendly outing. I'm glad we keep the win streak, the unbeaten streak alive against Mexico. Uh, glad to see a beautiful goal come out of that game. But beyond that, just kind of painful to watch. And we we talked about the roster last week, and we were thinking maybe we'll see some variation of a three in the back system. Maybe we'll play with those two pivot midfielders. But it didn't really look like that. Tom, you mentioned that there wasn't really a setup to be possession play, so. What what were the takeaways? What are you taking away from this game? I, I think that you can take away... I mean, we could talk stock up, stock down as to who hurt their stock, who raised their stock. And I think you can't do that without saying that Aaron Long probably should have played his last game with the national team at this point. I mean, there's just no way to defend his involvement anymore after watching that game. You can't trust him to hit a pass. It doesn't matter if he's a decent defender and I think he had a good game playing defensively his ball playing skills are just so poor at this point that he's just a liability for the team and there's others who had bad games I think Jesus Ferreira did a lot to hurt his stock too 
but long when you watch the tape just sticks out because again and again Mexico would just man mark dust and long would have nowhere to go with the ball and it would be back to Zimmerman back to long back to Zimmerman back to Johnson and cleared and it was just really frustrating to watch yeah. I, I do think that this reminds me of a story my dad would tell me when I was younger which was if you eat too much pizza there's eventually this slice that starts to taste bad even though you know it tastes good and I think that's what's happening here with my mindset of watching this game. Ellie, I did the same thing as you because this game kicked off at 10 p.m. Eastern time. I'm a new dad. I, w- I want my sleep. <laughs> I live on the Eastern seaboard. Um, it was very difficult to watch that first half and make a case in my mind that I, it's worth it to watch the second half. And I really feel like U.S. and Mexico are starting to enter the territory of doing too much of a thing to the point where it dilutes the meaning of that thing. And that's kind of what I'm taking away from this U.S. Soccer Mexico Federation. I'm glad you got your money. But as a fan, it feels like I didn't really care. Hey, did you good? Did you actually watch highlights of the second half at all? Yeah. yeah, because you did miss out on the better half of soccer. If I have <laughs> to say, like, besides Kellen Acosta's absolute hospital ball, 75 yard back pass that gets picked off for a goal. U.S. actually looked very good uh in the second half and Alan Senora played very well and I thought James Sands covered himself in a lot of glory throughout the second half as well so there were there were much better moments in the second half than they were in the first half I it even got some spicy happy like play in the last 10 minutes so like you guys missed out on the better half of play if you had to choose one to watch the first half was painful the second half was slightly less painful well they didn't tell us that no, play U.S. soccer. Make the games earlier. Tell them that they need to play the better half at the beginning. So all of us people, I teach. I want to go to bed. I can get up early. And I'm pretty sure the same thing is happening. We'll talk about LAFC versus the Philadelphia Union later on in this episode. The same thing is happening where even though the game is in Philadelphia, the game is kicking off at 10 p.m. Eastern time, which is insane for the fans that are attending the game in the area. I mean, it's tough enough to bring your kids to a 7:30 kickoff and get them home or like even if you don't have kids, 7:30 being home by 10, that's a, a tough get for me, but yeah. I, I don't know what is happening. I'm a, there has to be some research or some data analyst that is telling them this is a good thing for business. I guess so. I mean, I think that this one was just a factor of Arizona doesn't do daylight savings time and so they're on Pacific time and that would be a 7:30 kickoff in Arizona, but I mean, I think that this one was much more for the Mexican national team fans who I think are generally on a more Western time zone than the Eastern time zone U.S. national team fans. I think it's sort of fair to say that that's where they were seeing the revenue coming from. I mean, when's the last time they played a USA friendly outside of World Cup qualifier in Mexico? It's been a long time. Mexico doesn't really play friendlies outside of the United States. They play generally tend to play in the United States when they're playing friendlies. I think the commentators were saying they've played in that Glendale Stadium more than the U.S. has. That there was a 10th <laughs> appearance in Phoenix. All right, so speaking of USA-Mexico, we did release a joint bid for the Women's World Cup in 2027. That will be uh, decided on later in this year. What would it mean for us to have a World Cup in consecutive years? Also, MLS is growing at an exponential rate. We're not only selling players, but bringing in players earlier in their prime and earlier in their careers. 
the talent level, the production level, everything is increasing as we can see it. Ellie, what would it mean to have that Women's World Cup come to the U.S. for the third time ever, right after the Men's World Cup is hosted in 2026? I think it shows the, the change that we're seeing in U.S. soccer culture um, and just in U.S. soccer in general, right? Um, MLS, I think when we first started talking about it, right, it, it was a, a league for retirement. Um, it was a little bit of a league for, for prepping new players, but it has really grown into a real a solid league where players are coming to play, where you see a lot of talent appearing and finding your place, um, which is really cool to see. And so I think that this bid is a, another shot for us to say, we're adapting, we're joining. Um, we are going to work until we become a U.S. soccer, or until we, we become a soccer power, um, which is really, really nice to see. And to see the women come and play a, a map, play a World Cup here, I think would be really amazing to to remind the world, you know, U.S. women's soccer, like, like that's the powerhouse in in U.S. soccer, right? Women have always been that powerhouse. They sort of have it come back and get to like after showcasing them and be like, but don't forget all of this power and all of this, everything like the, the successful team historically had been the women. So yeah. it'd be amazing. And we, we haven't hosted the tournament since 2003. We did host it in consecutive tournaments, 1999 and 2003. Those were historic moments, but this is kind of a new generation and a new generation of soccer fans, a new generation of female soccer fans. So Tom, this this does feel kind of different, right? I know we've hosted it twice for the Women's World Cup, but this this feels like a new moment for the fans here, a new generation to really take in the game. Yeah, I think it's a great chance to inspire a new generation of fans, you know, give them that that thing to look forward to, watching the women on the field and sort of saying, I want to be, I want to play for them. I want to be, next time we host it, I want to be the one who's there. You know, Ellie and I were at the Rose Bowl this last this last January and right outside the stadium there's a statue of Brandy Chastain uh celebrating her winning penalty at the 1999 World Cup and it's you know it's just an iconic thing to see like even passing it 25 years later you're like wow that's this is a huge moment in soccer history that happened right here like that's that's so cool to see like getting a chance for those memories to be made again in with a new generation I think is a very special thing I think it is probably even better even detect it from an M NWSL perspective where I think that the league is talking about expansion to 14 teams here in the near future and frankly should be looking to expand even more by 2027. So you get a league that is growing and developing and getting a massive influx of cash in the last few years. Give them a Women's World Cup to increase the popularity of the sport domestically and I think the sky's the limit for what this does for NWSL. I mean... Tom, you and I were there at the NWSL draft this this year. We saw the Lynn Williams, Alyssa Thompson trade happening, and the, the production value, the the amount of intrigue, and the amount of excitement around that event, like it was a packed hall to to watch that draft and yeah, to think about was, that as the draft, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. It was I that even in the current state, NWSL, NWSL has a lot going for it, and. I, I was very impressed by the production value, everything to go with it. So I just think that the the league's improvement going forward is going to be huge, and this is a great big part of it. 
Ellie, what do you think this means for NWSL and the growth of that league? I completely agree. I think that this isn't a trend that we're only seeing in U.S. women's soccer. I think it's a trend that's being talked about all over the world, right? I think that we're leading the pack in, in this in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that that people are starting to look at these conversations about women's soccer and starting to really recognize just how important it is and how how what market there is and what value there is in this 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 amazing like these amazing women and so i i think that we're moving in the right direction and i really am excited to see what we what we end up with and all of this it should be really really cool i'm really surprised you didn't take the chance to bring that back to lower league women's soccer <laughs> oh no don't get me wrong. I mean, I am beyond like what happens in lower league women's soccer. We we just got a new league. Like the everything is expanding and growing. Women's soccer is starting to really take off, and that is just inspiring. Especially as a woman, like I just think that that is just amazing. And what inspiration we're gonna have for the little girls out there who are thinking, you know, I want to play soccer. And I want to do this. And then they have all these models. They have all these people to look up to, all these wonderful players. And they can see a system that is being built for them in some ways, right? For that future of, of women's soccer. Um, it's just inspiring and amazing. I I cannot wait to see how this, how this all works. It's going to be amazing. It does feel like there's a groundswell in women's soccer right now. And the fact that you can see the growth of the men's game where when I was growing up, it was kind of like every four years, people would get excited. Like maybe they weren't soccer fans, but they would support the U.S. And then like moving into the 2000s, there were more and more MLS teams, more MLS fans, more domestic fans, more Premier League fans. And there's there was kind of this groundswell in like the 2010s, uh, early 2000s for the men's game where there, there were like genu- genuine fans of the game that didn't just watch every four years. And it feels like with the NWSL and the growth of that league, that same groundswell is happening within the women's game where it's not just every four years for the World Cup or for the Olympics that people are caring about the women's team, that this, the She Believes Cup, the NWSL, everything has amazing attendance. Uh, TV figures, Paramount Plus has bought the rights for NWSL. I will also keep beating on the strum that Apple, if you keep putting MLS games at two different times throughout the day, and that's the only time I can watch MLS games. I will always watch NWSL games throughout the day because that's the soccer that is on and it's good quality. So again, Apple TV, MLS, take a damn hint, but also NWSL, you're doing great. Thank you for being available to watch uh, when when I need more soccer. Okay. Let's yeah, go can we talk to... real quick about yeah. Canada's involvement in the yes. bid because I find this to be hilarious. Um, Canada released a statement after the U.S. and Mexico announced this joint bid, and they basically said we hosted a World Cup recently, so we don't think we'd actually be allowed to. But we quote weren't given the option to decline, and basically pitched a fit that they were not included on the bid despite the fact that they were going to say no anyway. And I find given all the problems in Canadian soccer right now, this to be at a hilarious use of their time. They released this sort of very pouty bit, uh, statement about this World Cup bid. It was almost like we we saw them from afar at what's happening with Canadian soccer and also the fact that they hosted it recently to be like, you know what, we're going to distance ourselves. You're, you're not even invited to decline. We don't want you here. I mean, given 
all the stuff that's been going on. I, I kind of can't fault the U.S. Soccer Federation for doing that. Can you guys? No. No, absolutely not. No. Canada soccer continues to be bafflingly comical to follow because, like, you know, they've had such good men's and women's teams for the last few years, and their federation just does stuff like this at every step of the way, and it's it's just, it's really amusing to see. I think my I guess, favorite, yeah, my, my not, favorite Canada bit is on their Twitter profile. They have, like, CompuCaf champions of 2022 because they're counting the World Cup qualifiers as winning CompuCaf. Instead of, you know, a regional tournament that declares a regional winner. Or the National League. league. Yeah. <laughs> Neither yeah. of which they won. Yeah. The, they won the one thing that doesn't give you a trophy. Good job, Canada. You'll always be America's hat. Okay, should we move to England? Let's do it. Where, where Leeds seem to be botching it. Uh, they're still just outside of the relegation zone, but... The Americans on the team that are healthy right now, Weston McKinney and Brendan Aronson, had, have had really poor showings over the last few weeks. McKinney had one good game that I can remember. Uh, Aronson has not produced assists or goals like we are used to seeing him. Tyler Adams is injured as well. And even with Javi Gracia, the new coach, Leeds got the, the new manager bump for a few games and seemed to be back down to their level. It doesn't necessarily seem like Jesse Marsh was the problem. So... From an American perspective, from a U.S. national team perspective, Ellie, is there something troubling or worrying you watching Leeds and seeing what's happening to three very critical players to the national team? Um, in some ways, yes, right? It's it's concerning to see this three players fighting for winning an allegation and to see them on a team that is just not like not producing at the level that they could um but on some level i'm i'm not too concerned about it partially because Leeds is really fighting tooth and nail for it so i mean it does kind of push our american players to fight their hardest train their hardest work their hardest which can never hurt um but seeing them fighting for relegate fighting against relegation never inspiring doesn't make you feel great um definitely is concerning um but i knew we'll see how it all plays out tom is fighting for relegation a good thing for players to go through it would be if i thought they were actually a mentality builder it would be if i thought they were actually fighting and when you watch weston mckinney play i just doesn't seem like he really cares about playing for leads or like about any of this it's it, it just it doesn't seem like his mentality is there to sort of be in the fight he seems to just sort of like almost be resigned to his fate and just sort of be looking at his like shopping for a new club already um instead of really sticking it out so i i think that it can be good for the mindset especially for a young player i think it probably is doing good things for aronson more than it is for mckinney but it's a little worrying to see mckinney just be that checked out and be just so disinterested in playing for Leeds at this point. I mean, that might also be the details. He, he is on loan from Juventus still. That Leeds did not buy him yet. There's an obligation to buy him if they stay up. So McKenney doesn't really have any personal buy-in on what happens to Leeds if they stay up. He gets to play in the Premier League. He gets uh, 
players usually get a percentage of their transfer fee. And if they go down, he just goes back to Juventus and potentially gets to pick his next team that he wants to be transferred to. So for McKenney, there's not really a ton in it to have him holding on for dear life, fighting this relegation battle, where for Aronson or Adams, it probably means a lot more. Also, they've been ingrained in the community for a little bit longer than Weston McKinney. I also think, like, this isn't anything against Weston McKinney. He, sometimes, even when he has his best game, it looks like he doesn't care. So we're kind of inferring. But still, McKinney, I think, has the personality type to be that kind of player, to be, you know, I'm going to go out here, whatever happens, happens. Whereas Adams and Aronson have a little bit more of that, like, that grittiness, that determined yeah. piece of it. Um, that's not to say anything bad about Weston McKinney, but I feel like for a relegation fight and for the the emotion that Leeds and Ellen Road tends to provide their players and their team, Adams and Aronson just feel more Leeds to me than Weston McKinney does, and maybe it's hurting him a little bit. I mean, I, I remember reading a, a Matt Doyle tweet after the World Cup, which was kind of like, U.S. M&T fans tend to over... We tend to overthink where our players are. Uh, we have Christian Pulisic, who is pretty much a substitute player at Chelsea. We have Brendan Aronson, Tyler Adams, Wes McKinney, who are fighting relegation. Josh Sargent is in the championship. Gerald D. Like, we tend to overinflate what we think of our individual players. And although they might be playing in Champions League, they're not really at world-beating teams, they're not really being asked to be critical pieces of Champions League winners. Even when Christian Pulisic won the Champions League with Chelsea, he came on as a substitute in that match. So I guess all of that is to say, maybe relegation, the fight is good for some. Wes McKinney, I'd love to see a little bit more out of you. Um, Is this also telling us a little bit more about the talent level at Leeds in terms of was it Jesse Marsh that was the problem in the way that he was playing? Or are Leeds just relegation fodder in the Premier League? I think they are, but also it's really hard to you know look at a team without Wober and without Adams and say this team is the same team that they were a few weeks ago. Like Without those two players, it just they don't have a chance. They can't prevent anyone from scoring, and they were never scoring that much to begin with. So it's not really a recipe for success right now. Ellie, do Leeds stay up in the Premier League this season? No. <laughs> I, I really wish that I could get rid of her answer. No, no. Yeah. Not the way they're fighting. And I mean, watching, I think Thomas is right, right? Watching them now versus watching them far earlier in the season, Adams was that engine. I mean, Adams was that driving engine, kept everything together, put out fires before they even started. Amazing. They look so chaotic and disorganized right now. It's not even fun. Um, and so I just, without the players they really need, I really don't see it happening. I really don't see it happening. I wish. The the current leads kind of makes you miss Marshball a little bit. Like, at least in like the Marshball chaos days, like, they were losing 4-3 and not these really boring, awful games where they look disorganized. So kind of miss the chaos ball a little bit. I mean, if you take like the Liverpool matches, for example, Jesse Marsh leads, beats Liverpool, and Javi Gracia's leads lose spectacularly to a Liverpool team, given Liverpool are having a little bit more form at this point in the season. But 
I don't know, always tough to compare and contrast different managers with different players available in different times in the season. But still, I do think there are probably people that are starting to think to themselves, maybe Jesse Marshall wasn't that bad and maybe we needed a little bit more time to build that. All right, Jesse Marsh did come from the New York Red Bulls and the Montreal Impact before that. The old guard in Major League Soccer to come back to the, our domestic league are having a really rough go to start the 2023 MLS season. Sporting Kansas City and Peter Vermees, who was once hailed as probably the best coach, the best American coach in the U.S. Soccer League, uh, is the worst team in the league. They've scored three goals in eight games this season. A negative 10 goal difference. They have three points from three draws. They have not won a game. Uh, Greg Vanny just won his first game with LA Galaxy last night. Oscar Breja and Orlando City are flailing around Bob Bradley and TFC. Even with Insigne and Bernadeschi, great team, poor performances. Seems like all of the old guard in MLS that we used to look to to be some of the best that the U.S. has ever produced in the coaching arena seem to be on the verge of getting fired. So, Tom, what is happening in Major League Soccer this season? I don't know. Let's just set the record straight real quick, though. Kansas City is now three goals in nine games. Um, they lost again last night. God, shut up. It's, it's, it's bad in Kansas City right now. Um, but it's it's just a bad season all around for these teams. And I think it's a mix of things going on. I I don't know how to explain Kansas City. They they should be better than this. And Vermees just got a six-year contract extension and doesn't seem likely to be able to go anywhere given how much money that Kansas City has just invested in him. Uh, he starts his five-year extension next year, <laughs> um, which is very unfortunate for them. Uh, Galaxy has their own problems with their ownership and just completely being mismanaged. Uh, I don't know what's going on in Toronto right now. And, you know, Orlando City at least is, seems to be making some decent transfers, but they're just not fitting together. It's just a host of issues. And you, you start to wonder if, you know, the league, the, the rapid changes in the league are just starting to bypass some of these guys who've been around for 10, 15 years. It's a good point, Ellie. I want to ask you because in the past, it's been a lot of like, if this coach has MLS experience, then it means a lot. He understands the transfers and the Garber bucks and all of that stuff. But it looks like now that we have coaches that are coming to the league, uh, someone like Wilfred Nancy at Columbus and Montreal before that, other great coaches that are having an impact immediately. Is it so important anymore to understand the, the wackiness of Major League Soccer or have we started to grow not only in player quality, but coach quality as well? I'd like to think that it, it doesn't matter as much. Um, I, I, as a coach, and I mean, having that background is nice, but, you know, a coach that's that's willing to learn the system and will fight to learn the system can be just as effective, right? Um, I think that we are seeing a big growth in players and coaches. I think the whole league as a whole is growing in quality. Um Again, I think it goes back to that so that soccer culture and what we're growing in the U.S. Um, I think that we're we're really I think everyone is kind of starting to pay attention to U.S. soccer and is starting to see like can we can we fight and push and work to to join the big ranks and start being competitive everywhere. Um, that that starts with players and coaches and seeing where that goes. So I, I do want to ask: um, Does this validate? that someone like Schmetzer or Jim Curtin or Bruce Arena, who has the New England Revolution at the top of the table right now, does this validate them <laughs> as great coaches or 
Again, is this just like the parody in Major League Soccer that tends to happen each year? I I, I think that it sort of comes down to talent evaluation more than anything. Are you able to bring in very good players on cheap deals? Are you able to identify DPs at a rate that's enough that you're not going to just die the second a DP doesn't hit? Um, which tends to happen in MLS a lot. Um, it's Yeah, I think that this it comes down more to like how much you're willing to listen to your scouts, how much you're willing to build a team around like really good cheap pieces than it does about anything else really. If you're relying on every single one of your big splash signings working, you're bound to miss and you're bound to have a really bad time. Um, it does feel like DPs have become a lot less critical to the success of each team. Whereas, you know, five years ago, Toronto having Michael Bradley and um, Dozy Alpador. No, no, the really short Italian guy. Oh, Giovinco. Giovinco. Like that seemed unfair almost. <laughs> and, and that was like five or six years ago. Yeah. But now you have two or three great DPs. You still need a wonderful team around them. And I, I couldn't help laughing when you were talking about talent identification and contracts of good players because Bruce Arena has Josie Altstor on the bench <laughs> in, at the New England Revolution. And Bobby Wood is starting a... Or, yeah, is it Bobby Wood? It's Bobby Wood, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we also have kind of this new generation of coaches as well that used to be assistants for a long time. Pat Noonan at Cincinnati, as well as Bradley Carnell was an assistant at New York Red Bulls for a long time, is now having a lot of success at St. Louis. Um Gonzalez at Atlanta United is yes. he was Seattle's assistant for a very long time. He's finally got them looking good despite they wanted to fire him last year. So I do want to move to that, Tom. So <laughs> what is happening with Atlanta? Why are they good again? Uh it, it was cool to see how much they had regressed, if I do say so, from an Eastern Conference team fan that really hated to see the five stripes get a trophy before my team. But what is happening at Atlanta? Why are they good again this season? I mean, I think that plain and simple, they finally hit on a signing, uh, finally hit on a few signings in a row, and that really helped stabilize them. Uh, I think you have to sort of circle the Tiago Malmada-sized uh, um, player in the roster that has just taken the league by storm this year. I mean, if you guys watch them play it all, you'll notice that basically he just sits in the center of the field, and every time he touches the ball, he seems to make something good happen. It's... It's really phenomenal to watch. He's one of those players who just sort of raises the level of every single player around them because of how dangerous he is. And that has just sort of really, really improved the team. There's been some sort of defensive stability improvements too. I mean, Miles Robinson coming back from injury helps. Uh, getting some of those midfielders back healthy really helps. But really having Tiago Amada be that successful gives you a lot to work with. And, you know, replacing... Uh, uh, Martinez with a really good striker in Giacomacus helps too, but you know, it always comes back to the fact that every time Amato touches the ball, he eliminates two or three guys, he finds a pocket of space, and all of a sudden they're off to the races in transition with numbers. It's, it's honestly kind of spectacular to watch. Every time I watch them play, I'm like, oh wow, that guy, he's really good right now. Um, and it, it's just, yeah, I think that that is what it comes down to for me is they finally hit on the right signing that makes the team click together. Yeah. Ellie, are you seeing anything in Atlanta? I love watching Atlanta. It's super fun um, to just see them this season and to see them really, really have a really good season. Um, I wasn't a soccer fan when they were, when they were winning those trophies. And so 
all, all I can remember living so close to them is them struggling. Like that's all I've I've seen. I was at their last game last season. Boy, that was hard to watch. Um, <laughs> You have a lot of really angry fans at the end of it. And so seeing them really, really have a great season and be successful and really find their rhythm has been really, really cool to see. And seeing Miles Robinson come back and hit the ground running every single time I see, I, I love watching Miles Robinson play super well, seeing Caleb Wiley come enjoy the team and just make all the difference. I mean, it's amazing. I'm so glad that, that he's been able to show up and show out and seeing Almada come enjoy the team. Um, they came and played uh, Chattanooga FC in preseason and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, we have a World Cup winner sitting on the opposing bench. Like, how cool is that? Um, granted, he did not hit the field, which was great for Chattanooga FC. But you saw him. You saw a World Cup winner. You were there. Uh -huh. I, I, one of the big differences, you know, going back to that team versus this team, Almost no pieces that you saw at that game last year are different from this team. The difference is, last year, they had eight hamstring tears, nine quad injuries, and four Achilles tears. Like, that team was really badly hurt. Um, so all the pieces were, they had identified all that talent beforehand. They just couldn't click until the season because basically they spent the last year playing with their two team um, instead of their one team. Um, it was very frustrating to watch. But it all comes down to, like I said, DP signings mean a lot in MLS, and Atlanta has struggled the past few years with their DPs. So having Almada actually succeed has raised their level dramatically. And it sort of begs the question, you know, what is what does this team look like without him, and how long can they keep him? Do you think he stays this season? Do you is 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 it possible that? Some team does not look at what he's doing in MLS right now and not snatch him up over the summer. I think it's always really difficult with MLS because the way that the transfer windows work and the schedule that we're on makes it so that when teams abroad in Europe are looking to bring in transfers for their preseason in the summer, that's actually the middle of the season for Major League Soccer. So for an Atlanta team that looks at Tiago Almada and says, this is a key piece in our team. This is someone that we want to keep. This is someone that keeps the the engine of the team going. And without him, we are a much worse off team. That raises his value to Atlanta to, to be able to sell. But for players like Tiago Almada, or I'll use Almiron, who was a previous Atlanta United player, sometimes those players want to take their chance. They want to go abroad and be sold because they it's been their dream to play in the Premier League or play in the Bundesliga, whatever it is. So I do think it will come down to how much does Tiago Almada trust himself to be sold in a winter window when it's the end of the Major League Soccer season and he is able to come into a European team in the middle of the season and get integrated? Or is it worth it to kind of push Atlanta to get that transfer done in the summer and get a full preseason with a European team? I don't know. enough. You, pro you guys probably know a little bit more about where that's starting to lean, but my my thing is, Tiago Almada is a World Cup winner. He has played a part for Argentina. He has nine goal contributions and six games played for Atlanta this season. Some of them bangers. Uh, yeah. And some of them look like you know he's he's not even trying. These are things that he can replicate over and over again. I do think he, he will probably break the transfer fee record. He's also 21 years old. So 
given all of this level of talent, the the pedigree that he comes from, I think it will also help the amount that Almiron has provided to Newcastle United, especially over the last season. Teams can see that there's quality in Major League Soccer. There is quality that can add value to your team, not just be a bench player, not just be someone that you can develop later in the future, someone that can add to your team right now. So a 21-year-old World Cup winner, nine goal contributions in six games, I feel like he's probably leaving as soon as a team puts in a bid over, I don't know, 35 million is probably where my head goes. Yeah. Keep in mind that the MLS record transfer fee is uh, 24 million euros, which is not, I think that turns out it's still like 20 million at the time is what Almiron went for. Uh, he's going to blow the MLS record transfer fee out of the water. You might double. I think euros are more exp- more expensive. So it might have been like yeah. 30 million US. Yeah, I looked it up. Transfer market has a 24 million, but yeah, he's going to destroy the US, uh, the MLS transfer fee, I think. And this is Atlanta's business model. They, you know, identify young South American talent, they bring them in, they develop them for a few years, and they sell them for a massive profit. That's that's how they want to play the game. It's been varying degrees of successful over the years, but I think it's important for them, for their business model, to let these players go when they have the bids come in. So it just sort of becomes this sort of waiting game of who's going to put in a bid, how much is it going to be for, and can they keep him through the end of this season, which I think if they do, I mean, do you see them being in contention for MLS Cup? I don't see them in the Shield race, but I, I think that they, they're they a dangerous team for anyone in MLS Cup right now. Ellie, what do you think? I completely agree. Yeah, I think that they, they're, they're fighting for it, and I think of all the teams, I think Atlanta's got a shot at it. I, I they're a little bit suspect defensively. I mean, it'd be hard to beat like a Cincinnati, but I mean, in a one-off game, having a player like Almada really just—he says that's an X factor in a playoff game. You know, Georgia teams have been doing great this year, so let's hope for it, right? Pay no attention to the NBA when you say that. <laughs> it is kind of where my head goes with playoffs is if you have one player that's just hitting on all cylinders and if you have a goalkeeper that's playing out of his mind, you pretty much have a championship winning team <laughs> if you can string it together for four or five games. And for Atlanta, I could see that happening. I, I mean, Raguzan's out injured right right now. Um, so maybe he's back. Maybe he's back to old form. Who knows? Tom, I see in your face that so you maybe don't want that to happen. <laughs> you're you're okay with your backup keeper. Um, but I do think, like all things considered, having players that can hit a ceiling at the right time and string together a few of those performances, that always gives you a chance in a playoff scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, and that'll be part of the calculation for sure. But, you know, the joke is just going to become more and more real every single time I'm out of scores or has an amazing assist. The, the, the trade add a million yeah add a million just add a million every single time he does something amazing he's just okay the transfer fee just went up <laughs> that check what, just got a little bit what's bigger the number that you're you're putting on it i think it's going to be 42 million i i i it's going to be up north of 40 million for sure um is at least my guess i heard that napoli submitted a 20 million bill bid recently and I just sort of chuckled because there's no way that was any more than an opening offer given what I've seen so far but yeah it's it's gonna be a lot of money and it's gonna fund a lot of Atlanta United transfers going forward. Ellie do you have a number in your mind? 50 mil. All right there we go you heard it here first. Okay (laughs) staying with major league soccer teams but not in the league 
the Champions League for CONCACAF is in the semifinal stage, and we have a rematch of LAFC versus Philadelphia Union happening. So not only is this a rematch of last year's thrilling final that saw Gareth Bale crush Philadelphia Union's dreams in the last moments of extra time, but also guarantees that for another season running, an MLS team will make the final of the CONCACAF Champions League. So two questions. Uh, the first is, how excited are you to see a two-legged series between these two teams, especially knowing that Philadelphia Union got another victory last night? They seem to be getting back to their form within the league uh, and Champions League as well. But the second one is, have we turned the tide now on the Champions League and the regional competition with Mexico? So Ellie, I'll, I'll let you take that first. Um. I, let's see, exciting to see this matchup. Um, I'm not sure. I know that, that it's the Philly will be going into this with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, which sometimes leads that little leg up, that little extra drive though we lost it last time. So let's see, we're going to come out, you know, extra treat the nail, but LASD will come into this with confidence. I think it's cool to see two MLS teams in that final. I think it, again, everything goes back to that conversation about what's happening with U.S. soccer, and I, I think that it again speaks volumes to how we're developing, how we're growing, um, and us moving into our our kind of kind of coming into a solid league that that can really compete abroad. Um, so it's really cool to see. I I'm excited to see this matchup. I think it'll be an interesting matchup. Um, it should be. Kind of, kind of aggressive, I would say, on both sides, right? Both sides coming in with something really, really big. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. Tom, I do want to ask you, because the five years ago, it was unthinkable for MLS teams to go to Mexico and get results. And we've seen it happen over and over again now over the last few years. Have we kind of gotten over the hump where we don't say it's like, it's a, you know, pot shot, it's a once in a, a season thing it's now happening on a consistent enough basis that we have caught up with the quality and depth of mexican teams i think it's a little too early to say that i mean we we did just have our first mls team win this competition in like 20 years last year so like you know we're, we're getting more consistent results but i think that what matters is we actually start to get some trophies out of this before we start to say that we're really catching up i do think that maybe a better um measuring stick will be the league's cup this summer when the entire leagues will play each other and we'll get to see what that really looks like. I think that that's going to be a lot of fun to see and gives us a little bit better idea of where the two leagues stack up with each other than these sort of, you know, midweek, you might have had a good season last year, you might not be playing well this season matchups that we're getting right now. So, yeah, it, it's kind of hard to judge until we have a few more consistent trophies and we have a little bit better idea of you know, what the league's cup is going to bring. Mm -hmm. Talking to a lot of Philadelphia Union fans at work this week and what they're expecting from this match, I do get the feeling that they're more on the side of caution and more on the side of, great, another opportunity to be hurt again. So why why is it that Philadelphia might feel a little bit like they are the underdogs in this situation? I mean... Philly's not had a great start to the season. I haven't been watching as much of them as I should be, given where I live now. What what have you seen from them this season? Like what's what what has caused them to be scoring one point two goals a game before last night? Like what what's I mean, going on in Philly? 
I think the biggest reason has been that they've put all of their chips into the Champions League basket early on. Um, also, early, very early in the season, Andre Blake was injured for a few games. So it was just like they were they had a lot of changing lineups. They were using a lot of youth in Major League Soccer, and it just wasn't all gelling and connecting as much as it usually does. They were, uh, if you look at the underlying numbers of expected goals and the expected goal difference, they weren't that far off the top of the Eastern Conference table. But they just weren't getting results. I think early ones really hurt them as well. They lost to Inter Miami on the road, but and they were still having midweek games every week for Champions League. So I do think Jim Curtin early on in the season kind of defined that, hey, it's more important to have all of my starters ready for the Wednesday game to get through in the Champions League. And eventually I'll be able to focus more of my energy and my team on Major League Soccer. And it looks to be shifting a little bit. It was one game last night against Toronto, so I'm not going to say they've completely turned the corner, but I think if I had to boil it down to one thing, it's that Jim Curtin was really focusing his team on the Champions League, and it looks to have paid off now that they're in the semifinal. Yeah, I, I it's it's going to be a really interesting matchup. I mean, Philly definitely has struggled a little bit to start the season, so I, I hope that they're you know prioritizing the Champions League, um, but LAFC just looks like a machine right now. It's <laughs> I, they did just draw Nashville, but that sort of Nashville specialty is forcing you to embarrassing draws. So um, uh, I'm not putting too much stock in that one. But they've just, you know, you replace all the pieces that they lost last year with even better pieces. Boenga's having just an insane season for someone who just is stepping into a starting role for the first time. It's It's just nuts that they continue to find this talent and continue to produce amazing players like they have. Yeah, I, I don't really understand how they're doing it. Ellie, I do want to ask you because LAFC does seem like the the MLS version of the Terminator meme running straight ahead with with nothing to stop them. Should should the Union be scared coming into the semifinal? Are LAFC the favorites? They need to put on Philly needs to put on their game face for this day. They need to come into this with as much power as they can because LAFC is barreling at them, and if they don't if they don't pull together something really really strong. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be the, really the one. The one thing Philly can do, though, is compete. Is get into a game, say to themselves, "All right, this is ninety minutes. Doesn't matter what happened before. Doesn't matter what happens next week. But like, we will compete. We will keep this game close for ninety minutes." So I do think that can lend to having a really good game to watch. But I don't know, Tom. What are you feeling going into this match? I don't know. I I feel like Philly's got a chance. I think that the Hosting the first leg is a very good thing for them. I, I don't think that they would want to go, you know, face the three two five two in that first leg and then have to come back home and try and dig out a result to win the tie. But it's it's just a I think it's a it's a tall order to try and beat LAFC over at home and home series, just with how good they have been over the last twenty four months or so. It's it's hard to see them doing anything but just rolling through CCL and whatever they play in right now. I mean, the team just doesn't really seem to have that much of a flaw, besides maybe the fact that Aaron Long is coming off their bench. <laughs> or starting. Yeah, or starting sometimes, yeah. Um, making insane goal deflections from laying face down on the ground. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that highlight at all. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was so angry when I saw that. I was about ready to throw something. I was like, there's no way that works. <laughs> um, I also want to give a huge shout out here to the 3252, the supporter section for LAFC this year, is insane. 
as a supporter in U.S. soccer right now, like I, I can't go quiet. I can't sit quietly um, talking about the fan support that LAFC has. Like, if any club has is got the support this year, who? Like, I'm, I'm trying to fight my way into their supporter section for just one game, just so I can see. Like, it, it looks like magic, and so support especially. The Derby game against LA Galaxy at their home stadium, uh, just taking over, hitting the Poznan as well, which if you don't know, it's when you turn your back as a supporter section. You know, it's a it's a sign of disrespect to a rival. LAFC hits the Poznan in LA Galaxy Stadium and wins the game. I mean, Ellie, you're right. It's, it's the supporters section right now that I think, and I would put St. Louis maybe in this category, just the supporter sections that look the most fun to be a part of. Yeah. Except for Chattanooga FCs. I was going to give you the opportunity. I Fine. I think that's it for our topics today. Um, Ellie, with your last word, maybe tell us all about Chattanooga FC and why lower league soccer is amazing <laughs> in the U.S. <laughs> Coming in here hot with another, with another take on CFC. Y'all, we were popping last night. The fan section, the supporter section, the hooligans were just incredible. Hearing a section just so loud, so happy, so together, it was just incredible to see, to hear, to be a part of. I count my lucky stars every single time I go to a game for that really amazing fan support in that community. Um, and finding and talking to so many amazing fans who've just started fighting their way into soccer and have found a community in CFC and have figured out that like it's a group that no one cares about how much you know about soccer. In the long run, I think what's going to end up being the difference in how U.S. soccer develops is people finding the communities and the communities supporting and lifting up. Um, it's just amazing to see CFC is having a great season. And I I want to give some of that to fan support. I mean, it's been a really loud, really, really energetic. Oh, don't give me that look. Uh, really loud, really energetic fan support this season. And so I'm so excited seeing it and to keep hearing it for sure. Um, so last word is always support lower league soccer. Find your look, your local team. It doesn't matter how much you know about the sport. What matters is that you show up and have fun and that you enjoy every second of the people around you who are there lifting up something awesome with you. So find your local team. There are tons of resources to do it. You got it. There are so many leagues. I just want to end the episode on that. But I can't because, Tom, you still have a last word to go. What's your last word, Tom? I'm going to go with live in the moment and enjoy the soccer you watch. I feel like one of the themes of this friendly that the U.S. played this week was people just getting really angry about the result, the fact that we played it, the players who played in it, and just, you know, just a really hard way to watch soccer for me. You know, no matter who's on the field for the U.S., they're still playing for the U.S. I'm still extremely happy to see them out there for that whole 90 minutes, so... Live in the moment, whatever game you're watching, try to enjoy it. Try to remember that we do this because it's a lot of fun. So whatever soccer you're watching, make sure you go out and have a great time. A prophetic speech from a future doctor of the universe. Um, Ellie, thank you so much. My last word is thank you to everyone that is watching or listening to this and to us talk about soccer. It's amazing to get to be back to talk about everything happening in this world 
over the last few weeks. So thank you to you. Thank you for making this happen and making it possible for us to talk to you each week. That's our episode, and we'll see you next week on It's Called Soccer Podcast. See ya. Thank you.